My name is Jay Hotchkiss. Uh, today's scripture reading is 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 9. Uh, I'm going to be reading from the Black Pew Bible on page 953. And if you don't have a, black, uh, a Bible of your own, please feel free to take uh, the Black Pew Bible in front of you there in the pew as a gift to you. Again, that's 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 9. Why don't we stand together if you're able? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. The word of the Lord. Good morning. It's this holiday weekend, which means a lot of people are traveling, and some are, have traveled here. We have some new faces, so happy to have you here, and hopefully this is meaningful to you. Uh, I, uh, I'm going to make a couple announcements, and then we'll release the children. Uh, there's invites all over this church, so in the foyer there, and then in the office, and in the learning center. Uh, these are meant to as tools for us to invite others to, to church or various ministries that we have. Kids Connection, which will start September 13th, uh, so that's next week, week after this one uh, on Wednesday. And then, of course, Youth Group is already going, and uh, we're starting a new sermon series next Sunday. So lots of stuff happening. I, I just encourage you to, to use these tools to find the right way to connect with your neighbors and friends and relatives and to share the gospel with them. For some, these programs are going to be relevant and important. For others, not, and that's okay. But uh, the point is to communicate the gospel to them and to love them as Christ loves us. So please make use of that. Harvest Fest is coming up on Saturday. Uh, some of us will be there. There will be a booth from Chatham um, in Howdershell Park right, right here, just a mile away from here. Uh, please come and just come meet your neighbors and reconnect with someone, enjoy our community, and maybe you'll get a chance to share the gospel with someone. A new Sunday school quarter is starting. There are three adult classes as well as kids' classes that are starting next Sunday. All the information is in your bulletin, so please look and decide what you want to do. We have a new members' class that's going to be on Saturday, September 30th. So we're, doing, we're going to try a Saturday morning class for that, so just one class, we'll cover everything. If you've been coming and, and been attending and involved at Chatham and want to make that kind of next step of getting connected here, uh, please talk to me. We'll have a sign-up sheet probably next week, uh, and there'll be stuff on the city as well, which is our social uh, network tool for the church. So that's Saturday, September 30th. All right, now children between two years old and third grade are released for Children's Church, if you're visiting with us today, there'll be somebody in the foyer to tell you where to go, where to take your children, and explain how Children's Church works here at Chatham. So when you approach our sanctuary, if you were to go out and just come in through these doors, 
Just above the doors, uh, there's a phrase that's painted over, uh, and, and on purpose, we want this to be there, we want it to be visible and for us to remember, and it says, Growing Disciples of Jesus. A very simple phrase, something that helps us stay focused on what our church is about. That's what we're about. We want to grow in our walk with Christ, and we want to help other people grow in their walk with Christ. Maybe if some to come to Christ, that's part of that growth, and for others to grow in Christ, to become more mature, faithful, and useful disciples. Now, our vision more specifically than that kind of grand purpose is to see this church filled with new disciples from our community. As Ben mentioned earlier, we've been praying and preparing for especially this fall season of ministry with the focus on conversions. And so with all this emphasis on people coming to Christ and us wanting to see our neighbors and relatives and friends come to Christ, I thought it would be a good idea to consider how disciples are actually grown. How does that happen? How does someone come to Christ? How do we help other people grow? So I'd like to look at a particular passage that Jay read for us to set biblical expectations as part of our preparation for this new season of ministry. Let me give you some background really quickly. Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. Corinth had many, many issues. It's sort of a Christians gone wild situation in in Corinth. And uh, Paul very gently tries to counsel them and correct them and encourage them towards health. So he refocuses them on Christ and, and tries to heal some of the divisions that are in the church. One of the things that they divided over were the allegiance to various leaders. So they had Paul that had influence in Corinth. You had Apollos who had influence in Corinth. Peter even had some influence in Corinth. And so people would just kind of split up and say, well, I'm with Paul. I'm going to listen to Apollos. And then somebody will inevitably say, I don't care about any of you guys. I'm just going to listen to Christ and I'm going to be separate from all of you. And so all this division is happening in Corinth and Christ, and Christ is, is, his name is, is being brought shame to because of that. And so finally, Paul writes to them and he encourages them to focus on Christ and to seek unity under Christ's leadership and yet at the same time acknowledge leaders and follow them in an appropriate way. So this is where we pick up the argument. I'm going to read the passage again, 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 9. What, is then, what then is Apollos, one of the leaders? What is Paul, another leader? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. Paul is using an agricultural metaphor. He's going to then transition into an architectural metaphor that we won't touch at all, but we're going to focus on this metaphor of a field and workers in the field and the harvest that is brought from that field. So my experience with agriculture and farming is very limited. Um, I grew up in the city, and um, I, I have attempted to garden in my backyard a couple of years with various levels of success, mainly tomatoes, you know, kind of the simple stuff, and got a lot of help from, from people here, um, but really limited my skills as, as a farmer or a gardener. When I was growing up, my experience of agriculture was limited to planting and digging potatoes. That's, I feel like that's all I did when I was a kid. 
In fact, when I grew up in, in Kiev, in the city, there were, there were two periods of time where you would just simply not see a lot of teenagers in the city because everybody would go and either plant potatoes early summer, kind of late spring, early summer, or then you would go and dig them out and bring them back to the city because you want to eat them. And so I just remember there were just weeks where just nobody was, was around because everybody was digging potatoes. And that's, so that's my experience. So I'm trying to learn through this metaphor, and I'm trying to understand how agriculture works. Many of you are much more skilled and familiar with that world, so I'm happy to be corrected after the sermon. Tell me what, what I misunderstand about this. But here, clearly, church is a field. People are a field. They're God's field. There are different workers that work that field, and they perform different tasks, like planting or watering, presumably reaping as well, cultivating. But it is God who gives growth and produces a harvest. Now, this tells us a lot, this metaphor tells us a lot about spiritual growth, numerical growth, ministry, church life, and those kinds of things. So let's work through this passage together. And my my goal is to, as I said, to set biblical expectations for church ministry. As we're gearing up, we want to see our community be transformed by the gospel. We want to see people come to Christ and grow in him. Uh, What should we expect? What is the right biblical expectation for our ministry? So here's my outline very simply. First, I'd like to look at the field and its harvest. So the harvest from the field, meaning the people that are growing, that are coming to Christ and growing. How does that work? Secondly, I'd like to look at the workers in the field or those who are helping other people grow toward Christ or in Christ. And thirdly, I'd like us to look at God who makes us grow. So the harvest from the field, the workers in the field, and the Lord of the field. That's our outline. So how does this agricultural metaphor help us understand the nature of spiritual growth? I'll make two points here. One, spiritual growth is expected. Spiritual growth is expected. Farmers expect their fields to yield a harvest. When, uh, when we planted potatoes against you know, my and my brother's wishes, we expected to get something out of it. We expected that in the course of the summer, first you got the new young potatoes coming in, and then finally the harvest of potatoes later. We expected that we would eat them, that, that our work would not be in vain, that it would produce results and produce a harvest. And so every farmer expects that his field, his particular work, will yield a harvest. We should expect spiritual growth in our church. It's a biblical expectation Church is an organic thing. It's an organism that is meant to grow. In its very essence, church is a growing thing. The kingdom of God is growing and it's expanding. It's supposed to grow if it's healthy. Unhealthy churches don't grow. Healthy churches typically grow. It's an expectation for a church to grow. If you missed Engage, which is our prayer and worship gathering uh, this last Sunday night, and, and many of you were there, some of you missed it. And what we did is we set up an expectation. We did something visibly to remind us that God works and God, in fact, brings people to Christ and saves them. And the way we did that, to my left, you'll see a, a, a tiny table with three tiny jars with even tinier uh, rocks in them, stones in them. This is meant to remind us 
that God can save people, that we should be praying for people to come to Christ. The dark stones are meant to symbolize people that we are praying for, that we're witnessing to, that we would love to see come to Christ and be saved. And the red stones symbolize those that we have seen uh, saved or come to Christ or return to Christ in the last year or so. I think that's how we set up the parameters. So in the central, in the center jar, you have mostly dark colored uh, stones. But there are a few there that are red if you look carefully. Those are the people we had seen come to Christ in, in the recent kind of months and maybe a year or so. And so the goal here is that we place the dark colored stones in it, expecting that God would do something with these people. And we pray for them. This is not a magic jar. You know, it's not just like whoever I think of, I'm just going to throw, throw a rock in there. No, these are people we care for. These are people we are reaching out to. We're praying for them. We, we were witnessing to them. We want them to come to Christ. And so as a visible reminder, we put a, a dark stone in it so we would pray. And then as we see people come to Christ, we will replace those dark stones with red stones to signify that God did a work and somebody came to Christ, somebody returned to Christ. I encourage you, if you missed Engage, and that's, that's fine, still place a stone or two in it of people in your life that you're reaching out to and hoping to see them come to Christ. Or maybe somebody who is strayed away from the faith and, and you're, you're wanting to, to return to Christ. And we will see how God works. Now, we, th- this is in some ways, it's a dangerous thing, right? What if a year from now it's, it's still the same dark colored stones there and nothing has changed? We're taking that risk. But the expectation is that God would do what he wants to do and God wants people to change. God wants people to come to Christ and be saved and, and grow in Christ. We should expect conversions. This is, this is normal for a church to say we expect that God would move and people will be saved. We expect that our children come to Christ. We expect that people we witness to come to Christ. Now, of course, God gives the growth. God actually changes people. But because of the metaphor that Paul is using, the expectation is the harvest is coming. We will see people transformed. Now, secondly, and this is where we have to balance it out. First, we, we expect spiritual growth. But secondly, we know that spiritual growth is somewhat unpredictable. It's expected, but it is unpredictable. Here's how Paul's metaphor helps us. On the one hand, there is predictability in farming. There are seasons. You expect harvests to come at certain times. Uh, farmers do certain things, and they, need, they know what they need to do to get a good harvest. So on the one hand, you, you are kind of expecting things to happen the way they should. But on the other hand, there are so many factors that are completely outside of human control, which can significantly affect what happens on the field. Droughts, malfunctioning machinery, pests, economic changes, um, whatever it is, there are so many things that could go wrong and reduce the harvest or eradicate it altogether. Now, I'm not a farmer, as I mentioned before, but it seems foolish to predict the size of the harvest. Maybe you get an idea, maybe you get a feel of saying, I, I think this is going to be a good year, and everything seems to be coming together. But, but you can't really predict. You can't really say, this is how much we're going to get out of this harvest. And so it seems foolish to me for a church to predict the number of converts. When the elders plan and strategize, we don't set goals like that. We don't say, we'd love to see 15 new converts 
by next August. We don't do that. And the reason is because it's unpredictable, because God moves and God changes people. We don't do that. And if we can't do something, how can we set a goal for something so specific to happen? Now, we'll, we'll return to that at the end of the sermon, but Paul clearly says that only God gives the growth. Only God can produce converts. We should expect conversions because that is how God's kingdom works. But their number and timing must be left in God's hands. You, you may have noticed that I use the term spiritual growth. And I wanted to qualify when we talk about growth. What do I mean? I mean spiritual growth. I don't believe that we should set a goal for becoming a church of a certain size. That's up to God. But we do have an expectation of spiritual growth that includes not only us growing deeper in our relationship with Christ, but also other people entering that relationship as well. The nature of such growth is spiritual, and thus it, is de- it depends on the Spirit of God Himself. So the expectation of growth, that's how it works. And yet, uh, we defer to God to do what He wants, when He wants it, and as much as He wants to do. So let's apply this a little bit. Do you have an expectation of growth? I'll make it personal first. Do you have an expectation of growth for yourself? Do you expect to grow in Christ? Are you growing in Christ? Paul says you are God's field. Fields are good when things grow in them. And so are you God's field being cultivated and worked on and producing fruit in your life? Are you using the available means to continue to grow? Even today, it it so happened that we had two announcements. Uh, John talked about Financial Peace University coming up, and then Emerson talked about the 2-7, which is a discipleship course through the Navigators that's coming up uh, um, next week, in fact. And so these are means. These are means to grow. They're not magical. You don't have to participate in every program. But there are some things that are for you that have been designed to help you grow. That's what church does. You know, we, we think of things for each other, and we think, man, I'm struggling with that. I wish we had that. So, well, let's, let's organize that. Let's do that. I wish I had somebody to help me work through this issue. Okay, who do I know at church that can help me do that? Let's, let's get together. And you think through those things, and you plan, and you organize things to help us grow. The point is not to make you busy, but to make you grow. In fact, I don't want you to be busy at church. I want you to have time to be with your family, your neighbors, and to witness to people and and to enjoy life. I mean, those are important things that God wants us to to have. But there are some things that the church does that are important for you and will help you grow. So the question is, are you taking advantage of those things? And there are many. And again, I'm not saying you should be involved in everything. But some things, Sunday school, small groups, Financial Peace University, Navigator Discipleship, Youth Group, Kids Connection... Um, engage, which is a prayer gathering. We also have training events. There's all sorts of things happening. As, as you look at the bulletin, I think a good question to ask would be, what would help me grow here? What would help me in my circumstances where God has me on my level of, of spiritual maturity? What would help me grow here? And then take advantage of that. So that's personal. But corporately, 
we have to ask ourselves, do we have an expectation of growth for our church? Do we expect our church to grow? And again, I mean uh, certainly deeper in relationships, in our piety to God and our following Him closer, but also outwardly. Do we expect that our, that our network of relationships is expanded and we include other people in it? Are there groups in our community that we need to pull into our lives and into our church? Are we seeking to influence others with the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit? And as we do that, yeah, we should expect that people would be changed and that people would come to Christ and that some of them will probably end up as part of our church community. So as you pray, and I hope you pray, I hope that you work towards that goal, are you trusting that God will produce the kind of growth that He wants? Leaving the results to Him and yet working towards the goal that He has for us. So that's the field. That's the harvest of the field. Let's talk about the workers. And here again, I feel like Paul is... He's kind of given us both and. He's given us different sides of the issue and kind of keeping us maybe in tension a little bit, but certainly in, in, in some sort of a paradox here. And we have to get that fuller vision to understand uh, how it all uh, works together. It's, it's nuanced. It's not um, just yes or no. It's kind of nuanced here a little bit. So here's the paradox. Paul seems to be talking out of both sides of his mouth. He's saying, on the one hand, leaders are not important, He's saying, they're not anything. And yet, he says, they are important. They're fellow workers with God, given significant tasks to accomplish, and in fact, they'll be held accountable for what they do. So which is it? Well, it's both and. Let's work through it. Number one, workers are important. Are, are, are unimportant, excuse me. Workers are unimportant. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants. He says, servants. The word is waiters, just, just people who do these tasks most people can do, and it's not hard. They're replaceable, they're dispensable. Um, Paul is almost rude here when he talks about it, almost dismissive. He's saying, what, what then is Apollos? You know, not, not who, but more what. What is Paul? He's saying, what, what are they? What kind of creatures are they? They're not very important. They're servants. In Paul's mind, there's nothing special about Apollos or himself or Peter. They're just instruments in God's hands, instruments that God uses. They're servants in God's field. One does one thing, another does another thing, but they're all kind of involved in the same work sent by God to do something, and they're dispensable and interchangeable perhaps. Not all that significant. Uh, you may have heard the name Robert Murray McShane. I won't make you spell McShane. I always misspell it whenever I type it up. Um, you, you may know of him through the, the Bible reading plan. Some of you have used, he, he, come up, he came up with this Bible reading plan that many people have used since then uh, that kind of keeps you in the Old Testament, New Testament, and Psalms at all times, and you work through the Bible in a year. Uh, so McShane's plan uh, he, was, uh, he died at the age of 29 in 1843, just to give you kind of his era. 1843 is when he died. Uh, he pastored uh, in, um, in Dundee, Scotland, St. Peter's. Uh, Janice gets very excited when I mention Scotland, which apparently I do frequently. So. Um, he pastored uh, St. Peter's Parish in Dundee, 
Scotland, um, and he prayed, and, and you can read his, his journals, and he, he prayed so fervently and um, preached so passionately for people to come to Christ. And I remember back in those days, he had a parish, so, so it was just an area where everybody belonged to one church, and most people would show up at church, you know. And so mostly unconverted people that he would preach to and, and pray for. And he just, just this, this passion in his heart, and I remember reading his journals, and when, when he would get sick, and he had poor health, and he would often be, be in bed and unable to, to do his ministry, actually, to preach or to meet with people, but he would use that time for prayer. He just felt like he, he, he had to minister to his people even as he was sick, and just passionately praying for people to, to come to know Jesus. And uh, in uh, 1839, uh, McShane left on a missions trip to Palestine, which is its own kind of cool story. But he was gone for several months, uh, was deathly sick there, on, thought he was going to die, and still even on his deathbed in Palestine, praying for his people in Dundee, praying that God would move and, and save his people. And, and this is one of his friends, Andrew Bonar, um, his, that's his account of what was happening in Scotland while McShane was in Palestine. Meanwhile, this is Bonar's words, meanwhile, there were movements at home that proved the Lord to be he who alone does wondrous things. The cry of his servant in Asia was not forgotten. So as McShane was praying, God was listening. The eye of the Lord turned toward his people. It was during the time of Mr. McShane's sore sickness that his flock in Dundee were receiving blessing from the opened windows of heaven. Their pastor was lying at the gate of death in utter helplessness, but the Lord had done this on very purpose, for he meant to show that he needed not the help of any. He could send forth new laborers and work by new instruments when it pleased him. We little knew that during the days when we were waiting at the foot of Lebanon for a vessel to carry us to Smyrna, the arm of the Lord had begun to be revealed in Scotland. So they don't know that. McShane is praying for his church, even though he's away. They don't know what's happening until they get back to Scotland. But this is what was happening at the time. An incredible revival broke out in Dundee under the preaching of William Chalmers Burns, who was, he was the substitute teacher. He was the replacement for McShane. They just, they just sent him to preach while McShane was away. Burns started preaching and hundreds of people were converted. Just an amazing, you read those stories and it's, it's just, it's exciting to even read them. I can't imagine being, being part of that. But people were converted and people who had long resisted Christ were converted. You know, every night they would have prayer meetings and people would stay to talk with him. So an amazing work is happening. McShane doesn't know what's happening. He's still praying, but God is doing this, this great work in Scotland in the absence of the person who, who really wanted that to happen and work towards that. So Mr. Burns ends up reaping this, this great harvest in Dundee. So once McShane returns to Dundee, he learns all these things. He's very excited what, what God is doing. And of course, there are concerns about divisions in the church. You know, there's a beloved pastor who's coming back, but while he was away, there's the new guy who seems to be very effective in ministry. And how is the church going to handle that? How are the ministers going to handle that? Listen to Bonar again. He says, It was much feared for a time that a jealous spirit would prevail among the people of St. Peter's. Some saying, I am of Paul, and others, I of Cephas. So that's from our text. 
Those recently converted were apt to regard their spiritual father in a light in which they could regard none besides. But Mr. McShane had received from the Lord a holy disinterest that suppressed every feeling of envy. Many wondered at the single-heartedness he was enabled to exhibit. He could say, I have no desire but the salvation of my people by whatever instrument. That's remarkable. He comes back. His church is completely different. The, the city of Dundee is transformed through this amazing work of God. And all of that happened through the substitute guy who just came in and did that. Years of praying, years of working and counseling people. And God used someone else. McShane comes in and in this very gracious spirit just completely embraces this new work. And in fact becomes great friends with Mr. Burns and they, they correspond. There's, there's a lot of cool stories within that, but it's totally at peace that God would use someone else to do the work that he had been praying for. Now, I think McShane got the point of our passage. God gives the growth. Who then is Apollos? Who then is McShane? Well, they're just servants. God can use whomever he wants. Now, it's interesting that Mr. Burns ends up a missionary in China, one of the, the first Scottish missionaries in China, uh, works a little bit with Hudson Taylor. In fact, Hudson Taylor says that, that Burns influenced him. And so he's in China, and for 20 years, ministers there, and by all accounts has an unremarkable ministry. I don't know if there were any converts. If there were, very few converts. But people say, people who came later say, he prepared the soil for the next revival that came, came in China later, after Burns died and was gone. So it's amazing that Burns gets to experience just coming in into someone else's ministry, someone who had planted and watered, and he just reaps the harvest. And then he goes into a different ministry, ends up planting and watering himself, and not reaping the harvest at all. God uses different people, different instruments for different parts of the ministry. My friend uh, Q Mahmood from Chicago, he pastors a church in Chicago, and, and he and I, of course, over the years, prayed about you know, prayed for revivals, prayed for our communities and neighborhoods to be transformed as, as we do here, of course. And, and he challenged me one time. He said, you know, we're, we're praying for a revival. He said, would you be happy if a revival you have been praying for happened in a church down the street? What if the Lord answered your prayers and many people would come to Christ, but it didn't happen in your church, it happened in a church just down the street that you know? Would you be happy about that? It's a challenge, right, to ask that, have that question asked because, of course, you want to be involved in that. Of course, you want to see your labor bear fruit. But the biblical answer to the question, would you be happy if a revival broke out in a neighboring church, is yes. We should be happy. Of course we should be happy. It's God's field. He brings the growth. He does that. And we are servants to be used however he sees fit. And so McShane rejoiced that someone else was used and not him. And so if God chooses to use Hazelwood Baptist or Grace Bible or Good Shepherd Lutheran or North County Community Church, these are just the four churches on how to show here, uh, if he chooses to use one of those churches to bring a great revival into our community and not us, should we be happy? And I would say yes. We should be happy. We should rejoice that God answers our prayers and the field is bearing fruit, even if we are not directly involved in it and benefit from it. So that's 
Paul's first point about the workers. They're not really all that important. God can use whoever he wants. But then he says that workers are, in fact, important because he calls us fellow workers with Christ. I mean, this, is, this is an amazing thing when, when he says we are fellow workers with God in, in his field. This is quite a statement. What he's saying is that we work with God, achieving his purposes. We are co-workers with him. Now, it's not a peer relationship. We're not on the same level as God. But somehow God is involving us in his work. And he gives us significant responsibility to do what he wants us to do so that his purposes would be achieved. And so Paul says that he planted. That was his job, right? He, he started churches. Apollos watered. Apollos came and taught. There are many other people who worked in very specific ways. And all of that was significant and important. God used those people. So on the one hand, Paul says, what is, what is Apollos? What is Peter? What is Paul? We're just servants. On the other hand, he says, we are fellow workers with God. And as we work, God is including us in his work, and we are accomplishing his purposes. And, in fact, we are going to be held accountable for what we do. We will receive our wages based on how well we have done, according to our labors. Now, this tells me that it's pretty important to do what God wants us to do in his field. Whatever the task is, whatever God has given you. And maybe for McShane it was praying in Lebanon, and for Burns, it was to preach at that time. But it was an important task that God gave each according to his will to accomplish his purposes. Some plant, some water, some reap. But each one of us has been equipped by God to fill a role in the process of making disciples. And we talk a lot about that in our leadership meetings at church. Um, we talk about specific ministries and ask questions like, how does this ministry help us make disciples? Because not every ministry does it the same way. In fact, no, one, no two ministries do it the same way. They're all different. But each ministry is supposed to help the church make disciples. It's supposed to contribute and fill a particular role in making disciples. So whether it's fellowship or finance or mercy or women's or men's ministries or youth, whatever it is, we're all making disciples, but all doing it in slightly different ways. So how does my ministry help make disciples? How do I make disciples? What is my role? One big application point here is that we need to be intentional. Dallas Willard said, To make disciples, we must intend to make disciples. To make disciples, we must intend to make disciples. It doesn't just happen. Harvest don't just happen, you know. Somebody had watered, somebody had planted, somebody had cultivated the soil. Yes, it's God who brings the growth, absolutely. But we are his fellow workers and we have jobs to do in his economy. And so we need to intentionally pursue our tasks. And not just sort of fall into roles, but figure out what my role is and do it well. So are you intentional in making disciples yourself? There's one simple question that, that will tell you whether you are intentional or not. And the question is, what are the names of your disciples? Very simple. Can you name people you are discipling? 
If you can't name them, you're not intentionally discipling anybody. And so we all have to ask those questions. Now, does, is it going to look the same for you as it is for me? Absolutely not. We're all contributing in different ways, and our ministries and lives are, are contributing and helping the disciple-making process in, in different, at different stages and different ways. Some are witnessing to new believers. Some are raising already existing believers. Some are uh, training leaders. They're, diff- they're different tasks. But all of us must be engaged in the process of making disciples. Now, it certainly could be and should be in your home. Are you intentionally helping your children grow in Christ? Now, how do you, I don't know how you do that. It's probably different from how I do it. But the question is, are we doing that? Are we seeking to make our children disciples of Jesus? In, at your work, same question. Are you seeking to make your co-workers disciples of Jesus in your neighborhood? Are you seeking for your neighbors to come to Christ and grow in Him? In our church, do you have relationships in this church where you are helping other people grow in Christ as you are growing yourself? What is your role in this process? Well, finally, my last point, the Lord of the field. I think everything I have said so far can really be reduced to the call to cultivate this biblical combination of humility and confidence. Humility and confidence. We, we are to expect spiritual growth, so there's confidence, and yet it's God who, who does it in his own time, way, and measure. That's humility. We are uh, important because we have tasks to fulfill. We need to be intentional in disciple makers. That, that's confidence. And yet we're, we are not important because we can be replaced and and other people can, can do what we're doing. So that's humility. How can we cultivate this right combination, maybe even say the right tension between humility and confidence? The answer, of course, as always, lies in the gospel itself. We must look to Jesus, the Lord of the field, in order to have the right expectations of spiritual growth. This agricultural metaphor is used a lot in Scripture. I mean, we read a, a passage for call to worship about the vineyard, same, same deal. And through the Gospels and through the Epistles, we see that metaphor come up again and again. And so I'm going to give you two passages to how it connects to the Gospel and actually motivates us to have this right balance. Jesus himself says in John 12, verse 24, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies... It remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, Jesus is talking about his own death. The Lord of the field came to die so that a whole harvest of people could be brought into his kingdom. The field, the church, has been purchased by his blood. It cost Jesus his life to become the Lord of of the field. Now think about that. That helps with humility, doesn't it? I will never take my ministry as seriously as Jesus took his ministry to us. And so when I think about that, and when I think about what Jesus has done for us, 
what it cost him to gather us here today, what it cost him to convert us, to bring us into his kingdom, to save us, to help us, that makes me humble. It's his field. He bought it. It's not mine. It's his harvest. It's not my harvest. Just a servant. The mark of a good servant is humility. Submission to the will of the master. Now secondly, we see this agricultural metaphor appear again in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22 and 23. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Christ is the firstfruits of the harvest. In the Old Testament, the firstfruits were which you, which you got out of your harvest. is the first thing you got, the first product of your labor. And you would bring it to the temple to give to God in thanksgiving, saying, God gave the growth. And so I'm bringing that. But that's not all I have. There is more coming. And so that becomes the sign, the proof of what God has yet to do and in ways that God has yet to provide for you through your field. So Jesus, his resurrection specifically, serves as proof for us that this harvest is well on its way. That this process of renewing and restoration and redemption has started and it's already bearing fruit. Jesus being the first fruits of it. And so God has already been growing things. We already see the fruit of it and that gives us confidence that he will continue to do that. Now Paul says it's only God who gives the growth. Okay, we can say God is powerful enough to do that. The question is, will he do it? And the resurrection answers that God will do that because he's already started doing that through Christ. The same God who raised Jesus from the dead is committed to bring many more children into his kingdom. Even here at Chatham, in North County, in St. Louis, this is what gives us confidence. So humility, looking at his death, and confidence looking at his resurrection. And that is the right biblical combination to shape our expectations for this fall and the rest of Chatham's life and ministry. We look at Christ and we say we're going to humbly defer to him to do what he wants to do, when he wants to do it, as quickly or slowly as he wants to do it, whatever measure of his spirit he wants to give it to us today, whatever he wants to do is fine with us. We're humble. Because he died for the church, it's his church. But on the other hand, we say because of the resurrection and the power of the resurrection and the the harvest that's already started, we're going to confidently expect that God will do what he wants to do. He wants to save. He wants to transform. He wants to change. He wants to bring healing into our community. And so we expect him to do that. And we pray accordingly. In humility, your will be done. But also fervent prayers, God, do this work. Save these people. Praying specifically, asking for the Spirit to do what we know God wants to do in our midst. So that's my message. As we get ready for the fall, I think that's the right biblical expectation. Humbly deferring to God and yet confidently ask Him to bless us with an awakening here at Chatham and in North County. Let me ask you to do something. As you come to the table, we're going to take communion, and if you, especially if you're part of Chatham. Let this be a moment for you 
where you say, I am going to be a worker in God's field. And maybe you have been, so that's just going to be extra encouragement to you. And you say, I'm renewing my commitment. I want God to use me. I want Him to give me a task, maybe a different task, but I'm ready to work for Him. Or maybe it's a new thing for you altogether. Maybe you have been sitting on the sidelines and on the fringes of the church and kind of receiving some nourishment, but not really being engaged, not really uh, being a person who makes disciples. Let this be a moment at the table as you come to say, I, I am ready. I'm ready to step forward. I'm ready to step up. I'm going to serve my master, the master of the field, the Lord of the field, in the way he chooses for me, but I will make disciples, whether it's planting, watering, or reaping. I'm ready. Use me for whatever purposes you want. Humility and confidence together. Let me pray, and I'll pray towards that, and then we will sing and come together If you are a believer, we want you to come to the table and experience this feast with us. If you're not a follower of Christ, we ask you not to come to the table. Stay in your seats and come to Him. Go to Him directly. Ask Him to change you and to send you. If you're unable to come forward, an elder will bring communion to you. So if you're new here, just raise your hand and we'll we'll be happy to, to bring communion to you if you can't make it to the front of the sanctuary. If you're on the balconies, there are tables set up for you there so you can move forward as you are. So let's pray. We'll ask God's favor on our commitment to serve Him, ask Him to do His work among us. Father, we are grateful that You are, as Creator, made us. You made this world. You you made things that grow. You made us to grow, you made the church as an organism that is supposed to be healthy and grow. Jesus, we thank you that you came to redeem and restore this creation, including us. That you came to give us a new life and a new health. That through your blood we have been purchased and we have been saved, we have been empowered, we have been sent out to make disciples. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are the power behind all of this, that you apply the work of Christ's redemption to our lives and to our church and to our neighbors. That it is you who produces growth. It is spiritual growth. We are utterly dependent on you. And so in humility, we defer to you. We pray that you would use whomever you want, do whatever you want in the life of the church and in the people's lives that we're praying for in our own families. And yet we ask with confidence that you will do your work of restoration and redemption in our midst. We pray that those, those stones in the jar that symbolize people, people that we love, people that we care for, people that we're praying for and speaking to, that they will come to know you. That we will see those rocks be replaced with bright colored stones. And that we would rejoice that however you saved them, whoever you have used, They are now your children and your disciples. Would you give us that prayer that we would see many people come to Christ? We pray that in confidence knowing that you want those things to happen. Give us patience and flexibility and humility. Even as they invite people and uh, we expect that you would work, but also let let us defer to you in the way that you would do it.
Father, we thank you that in Christ we have everything we need to grow and to flourish. And so, Lord, we pray that we would use all the means available to us. And even as we come to the table, we pray that you would motivate us to become disciple-makers if we're not already. And saying that I will be a worker in your field. Place me where you want me. Give me the right tools. Give me the right tasks. And use me for your glory. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Let's do it together.